Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore in the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I'm Ann Stickney, one of two lore-focused writers over on Blizzard Watch, and I've got both of my beautiful co-hosts with me today. First up, he's the other lore-focused writer over on Blizzard Watch, and he's up in Canada, because that's where he lives. That would be Matt Rossi. Hey, Rossi, how's it going hey. up in Canada? Hey, everybody. Uh, like I, we were just talking, it's smoky. Smoky and covered in a constant cloud of smoke. It's so, not yeah. like raining ash or anything where you're at, is it? Uh, it? It rained the other day, but it was actual regular rain. It has. Okay. It's basically what's happening is we're getting enough of it to basically block the sun out and make it look cloudy, and it smells weird. Acrid. But yeah, if, if you if you have allergies, they get they get irritated. My wife's been sneezing up a lot, so I'm sure you, I'm sure you know how that is. So. Yep. Okay. Well, our other co-host today is not anywhere near a place that's on fire. I hope that would be our other columnist over at blizzard watch focused on shaman but quite the lore aficionado himself and that would be joe perez hey joe hello everybody yes i am not near anything that's on fire yet i mean you you never know that's like storming because it's it's from one end of the spectrum to the other depending on which side of the u.s you're on it's really funny because now with all the hurricanes that are happening their projected path ends right next to me (laughs) so so are you gonna be okay where you're at yeah i'm just gonna be really wet Okay. All right. So, It'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe any of this. Right. So, um, moving on from real life Spe- into... <laughs> speaking of cataclysmic events. <laughs> speaking of cataclysmic, but no. Um, we're actually going to go ahead and talk. We've got a few emails today. Not many. Um, mostly, I, I wanted to talk about the first cinematic, well, the second cinematic, technically, from Patch 7.3. But we've got a couple of emails that talk about that kind of stuff, and then we've got another email here that discusses something completely different, but I think it's a pretty valid question, and I thought that we should get to it. Um, as always, if you guys have any emails for Lorewatch, please send them to podcast at blizzardwatch.com. You can go ahead and put Lorewatch in the subject line, and we'll know that it's intended for the show. Um, anything 7.3 related is fair game, because 7.3 is out now. Uh, we have, I believe, the last section of the story quest comes out this Tuesday, or if you are listening to this on the website, it came out last Tuesday, and you've already played through it. So th- all of that material is also fair game if you've got any questions. Moving on! First email is from Ensnare Sucks from Vectalash EU, who says, Hi, Lorewatch. Love the show, even though it can be tough to keep up with all the information. That's why we throw it out there every couple of weeks. I was leveling an alt through Outland when I noticed that I could see Argus from Zangermarsh, which had me wondering, why can I see Argus from here? Is Outland that close to Azeroth so that the tearing open a portal for Argus is also opened up for the people from Outland can join our fight? Isn't this a clash with in-game lore in terms of what's happened in Mist, Cataclysm, etc. hasn't affected Outland, but now Outland is effective? Maybe it's just a bug. I've linked a screenshot from in-game from Ensnare Sucks. Sucks. Um, I I didn't link the screenshot in here, but it's just it's it's Argus in the sky. Just, yeah, I was just flying around all of Outland. I checked all the zones. Mm-hmm. You can see it from all the zones. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe, did you have any theories? I mean, the only thing that really comes to mind goes back to the Illidan novel, and it's when he created the whole spell that anchored everything together through the portals all the way from essentially Outland to Argus. Is that when he? completed the spell with the Sargerite Keystone that everything just kind of got pulled closer together, sort of like this huge vacuum of space and time where things just kind of went boop. Um, That's the only thing that I can really think of that uh, just off the top of my head that would really maybe do that. 
Rossi, you got any ideas? Uh, Black Temple. When you look at the black top of the black, yeah, yeah. When you go to the top of Black Temple, um, Illidan is basically staring up at Azeroth. He's looking at the planet. Um, he has effectively created a portal where he can observe the planet at all times. Um, as a result of this, um, we know that Outland is in the Twisting Nether. It's not in a physical place. Uh, by creating a portal, essentially. Outland is in a similar situation to Argus, but we can't see it because the portal isn't as big. So by doing what he did with the Sargrite Keystone, he's effectively opened a rift between um, Azeroth and Argus. That rift is constantly there. You're not, we don't see it because it's that big. It's big enough that you could see a planet through it. But when you do that kind of thing, you basically... You know, you're using the nether to do that kind of thing. So since he's already opened a portal from inside the nether to Azeroth so he can look at the planet, it's not surprising to me that Argus is visible. Did he do that? Did he do that in the in the novel? I don't know, quite frankly. I don't remember them ever actually mentioning it. I just remember I always think... being able to see it. No, yeah, he, he did think... mention because I... when he was at the top, like he was there in the book, there was that the, the whole thing where it's like, what are you looking at? And he, you know, basically says home. Okay, because I my understanding of the whole being able to see Azeroth from Outland was that because Draenor had been essentially like the last chunks of it had been kind of blasted into the Twisting Nether, which is why when you fall off of the thing or when you fly from zone to zone, you fly through a channel that's called the Twisting Nether. You can talk on it, too. There's never anybody in there, but you can talk on it. Um, My understanding was that just due to the nature of the portals that Ner'zhul opened, when all of that happened, when all that went down, when Draenor crumbled, it kind of got blasted into the Twisting Nether, which is why the sky was so weird and everything just looked strange. Um, And because it existed in the Twisting Nether, that the Twisting Nether is this sort of plane of reality that kind of overlaps everything. So you could see Azeroth from it, right? And Mm. my... My understanding of it is Argus is also in the Twisting Nether. It's just that when Illidan opened that portal and pulled Argus close enough for Azeroth to see it, since Azeroth can see it, oh, okay, yeah, you can see it from Outland too, because it's it's just like a chain of visibility going on there. Um, Now, mind you, it could just be a bug, (laughs) and it's not actually supposed to be in the sky above Outland, but there are legit reasons. There's legit reasons that it could be seen, you know, Um, even if those are never directly explained. And and I did check, too, and I spent uh, a good couple hours just kind of wandering around all of the different various things we have access to. It's definitely not visible on Draenor proper. Like, if you go through and you go back to where the planet hasn't exploded yet, you can't see it. So... So Warlords it, of Draenor, I, Draenor. Yeah, Warlords of Draenor, Draenor, you can't see it. So I Alternate don't think it's a visual bug. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think I think this might actually legitimately well, be here's, intentional. No, here's, here's my reasoning why I think that it might be a bug. Because, okay, it's visible from the Exodar and it's visible from Silvermoon, Right. Those Which they exist in the instant stack. And, yeah, yeah, they don't actually exist in Vanilla WoW skybox. They exist in the Burning Crusade well, skybox. My my counter to that, though, is, is there is a distinct difference, and this is something that they talked about a long time ago. Those starting areas are instanced. They are 
in the instant stack. They're not in the world stack. There is a difference there. That's very bizarre and, because I can see there. Okay, way back when Burning Crusade came out, right mm-hmm. when it first came out, um, people discovered that if you climb to the top of the dark portal, I think it was the dark portal mm-hmm. entrance in Hellfire Peninsula, and you did some kind of far side or something. I don't I don't remember what it was exactly. You could actually see the spires of Silver Moon floating off in the distance like their own thing way off the map. Which is very interesting. I don't I well the the, the problem too from a technical standpoint is the technology has changed so much too that again yeah. what we know may be antiquated. So we we don't we don't know it could very well like you said it could very well be a bug. It could very well be intentional. Um the fact that I think I, it's I can tell you from, one thing. I can tell you one thing from for sure here because I'm looking at a video of it right now. Uh, as of four point, patch four point two, you could fly from Outland to Blood Mistile. Yeah. Yeah, they were physically on visit, reachable. It wasn't okay. separate servers. This is you know I can the the videos well, right here. So the interesting I don't thing know to if me, that's still the case, but the interesting thing to me would be like, and I'm probably gonna do this after we're done recording today is. I'm going to go into the Hellfire Peninsula instances that are open to the air and just kind of view up and see if you can still see it from there, too. Because I'm, I'm really, really I curious. Think, now. I think the whole reason that there's an instance portal to get to Silver Moon and to get to the Exodar is because you're zoning from vanilla content into Burning Crusade content. Actually, I don't even think there is an instance portal to get to the Exodar. I think no, but there's a, lo- there's, there's a loading screen. Open. It is a it's yeah. a loading screen in which it, it transfers you into the stack, or Sorry, at least it transfers you through. Different I, I, I should have specified it, it's a loading screen. There is a transition there. You can't just fly straight to Azrimus Isle from. It's true, absolutely. Kalimdor. Yeah. What's really um, interesting to me, though, is like one of the things I've been thinking about with this. Um, in terms of one of the things we don't know for sure is exactly Argus's relationship to the missing other. Like we know that it, if you supposedly if you die there you, as a demon, if demons die there, they're dead for real, but not. Exactly, because they go back to Antorus. Yeah, they're kind of processed through that engine and reborn yeah. or something. So and, there's and still, I imagine there's still we'll, some iffiness that's coming up. I think yeah, I, and I imagine that we'll see more of that process or hear more about that process once we get into the Antorus raid, maybe. But for right now, there's just this kind of iffy thing because it's very specific. There's a world boss that you kill, and when you kill them. Whoever pops up and says a thing that says, you know, they're going to get sent back to Antorus and they're not going to be happy when they arrive or something like that. Yeah, um, and there's a when you when you first get there, the one of the first um, broken that you see says, "We tried to fight, but they keep coming back." Yeah, you know what's so, interesting about that too, in general, is because that that adds a whole new flavor to it because we've never been to the planet, so of course we assume that they just go back to the Twisting Nether and they're reborn. And any information we might have gleaned from warlocks, I mean, their demons may not exactly have been the most trustworthy sources. So, I mean, it would make sense that there is like a giant engine of Titan-esque scale uh, that churns out new bodies for demons as their souls get back into the engine. Like, that that makes a whole lot of sense, honestly. Just saying. Yeah. I think think the thing to take away from here is that it might be a bug. It might just be a game thing where they wanted to make it visible, obviously, in the Exodar. Because yeah. you go to the Exodar to fly to Argus, and they wanted to make it visible everywhere on the vanilla landscape. But in order to do that, they had to make it visible on places that existed in Burning Crusade. Therefore, it showed up in Burning Crusade content, too. But at the same time, there are like there's there's legit lore reasons that could be gleaned from that. Whether or not those are accurate or not, they're still there. 
I mean, I'm there's, just there's kind say of an this. explanation for everything. I'll just say this much. Mm-hmm. They have the ability to skybox zones. Yeah, they do. If they wanted Argus not to be visible in, in Burning Crusade zones... Oh, they could have done it. They can do that. And they and might not have not been be paying attention to it because, I mean, who goes back to Outland these days? Yeah, that's possible. But... Well, I don't know about that because they pay attention to those zones, especially after they put push content, just like they pay attention to Northrend and everything else because yeah. things are linked in really strange ways and sometimes they update something for new content that breaks old content and they definitely pay attention to that. So I'm, I'm sort of on in the camp of, of I, I think they could have made it not visible if they wanted to. I think they wanted to be there. It, I really do. I, I think it may have if it if it's a bug, it's just they 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 weren't they either weren't thinking about it or they didn't deem it important enough to put through all that effort to actually could, change those skyboxes out. Yeah, I could see them definitely saying in order to get it visible on Azure Mist and uh Silver Moon, we're gonna have to be have it be visible in Outland and being like that's acceptable to us. That's okay. Yeah. Because yeah, Outland's in the that. Twisting Nether anyway, so it's fine. And like I said, there's kind of... It, it, it's it's one of those situations... And there's a lot of situations like this where, you, you know, you look at something and you go, oh, this is a bug. But there are ways that that bug, air quoting here, could be justified in lore if needed. And this is one of those situations where, yeah, there was enough presented there, both from Illidan, you know, looking up at Azeroth and seeing Azeroth from the Black Temple to even us going through the Black Temple. If you go through, um, is it Supremis? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you mean on Supremis's, yeah, and, and, and on Supremis's, that, that terrace that he's on, you can look up in the sky there and you can see Azeroth too. It's like right there. Um, so we do know that it is visible. It's not visible from every point in Outland, but it's it's visible. So a tear like that, especially on the scale that Illidan pulled, I mean, the way that Draenor and Azeroth were connected before, or excuse me, Outland, I guess. Well, it was Draenor both when Outland they first and Draenor. Yeah. But either either which way, both of them were connected through the Dark Portal. It was a very small portal that was on the planet's surface that you actually like went through. So it wasn't like it was super visible in the sky or anything. However, what what Illidan did with Argus was he created a tear so large, it was planet-sized, <laughs> so that we could actually like see the planet right there. Um, and that's a lot more substantial. So I don't really think that it's like too out of the realm of possibility that we do see it on Outland. I, I find it interesting that we don't see it on Draenor, um, because if it were the bug thing, then you would think that but Draenor's got its own set of skyboxes, too. Yeah, so. that's the other thing. Yeah, and they aren't connected to Kalimdor at all. Not like the Outland ones are. Because the Outland ones are, but they're in two very specific points. It's the Exodar, Silver Moon City, you know, Kel'Voloss. Um Okay, so moving on. Our next couple of emails here all kind of address the same thing. We're going to talk a lot about Zira today. We're going to talk about Zira, and we're going to talk about Illidan. So um, even the first... Even the first email here, we talked about Illidan a little bit. We're going to get a little bit more into Illidan. Our next email is from Kelleser, who's a night elf demon hunter on Kirin Tor, who says, Greets, lore watchers. I know I wasn't alone in finding the quest where Light's heart showed us bits of Illidan's history pretty annoying. Its narration seemed to grotesquely whitewash the very events unfolding in front of our eyes. I figured that eventually there'd be a reckoning with some new info coming in to sort out what part of those experiences to trust more and sure enough here we go following Zira's face-to-face encounter with Illidan it seems clear to me that 
She was, to borrow a great line from the Church of the Subgenius, pulling the wool over her own eyes. She hadn't just been selling us a line about Illidan that dismissed his actual flaws and complexities. She had been hoodwinking herself. The Illidan in Zero's mind turned out not to be much like the real one, and given the choice between the two, Zira tried to go with the fantasy, and it didn't work out very well. I feel a lot better about those quests now. I want to talk about Zira's perception of Illidan, because particularly with the Light's Heart quests, we've all played through them. We've all mm-hmm. seen them. We've all seen Zira calmly tell us about the child of light and shadow who was born to a great destiny, and his name is Illidan Stormrage. And we have to find him and restore him and bring him back because we regrettably killed him and we need him. Um, what do you guys think? Do you think Zira heard this prophecy somewhere, or do you think that Zira generated this prophecy herself? Uh, I don't think the Nara were really good at prophecy, to be quite frank. Yep. Uh, <laughs> one of the things one of the things we know from, like, sure, is that it was Velen who prophesied everything that was going to happen when you did the whole thing with the Burning Crusade, and um, I can't remember the name of the, the Naru who goes into the Sunwell, I'm sorry. Burrow. I'm just like... Yeah, Muru. The whole thing with Muru, the whole thing with the Sunwell, the whole thing with the reignition of it, it was Velen who prophesied all that. It wasn't the, the Naru. The Naru do not send him visions. They use his visions. Uh, and that's been established several times. For here's, all that Here's my argument. Like, I have a counterpoint to that, though. Okay. Back on Argus, initially, when, when, when Velen stood there with a triumvirate and heard Sargeras's thing and then kind of went off on his own because he was like, huh, something about this isn't right. It was Cure that gave him that vision of the Burning Legion. Do we know that? Yes. Okay, I don't know that we still know that. Let me put it that way. Because the vis- the video that's coming does not seem to say that. It was it, it was something that was stated. Because well, Cure, Cure spoke to him as well. I think it, I think though there's more to it. That if you want to talk about that, there, there's I think there's more to it, and I think maybe both of you are right. So I don't think the Naru are very good at prophecy because I don't think they can sort of look at it with a mortal's eyes because they see everything that the well, light touches more or less. Okay, so they see too much, right? Here's what I'm wondering, and let me rephrase this because maybe maybe my phrasing was a little odd here. Zira spoke of a great prophecy about this child who was destined for greatness, you know, the one born of light and shadow, and she assumed that it was Illidan. Um, Do you think that that prophecy was something that was given to her? And if so, who gave it to her? This is a question that I'm I'm not capable of answering because, I mean, they haven't really said where did she get it from. Uh, Certainly. This is why we're going to put on our tinfoil hats and do a little speculation. (laughs) My, My... my theory is that it wasn't the Naru. That, like, mm-hmm. I honestly, very rarely do I hear them actually say a prophecy. Like, when they, when Kure contacted Velen, did Velen have that prophecy and then Kure contacted him? Was Velen just seeing this? Because just because Kure says you've seen what it's going to be, that means that Kure is capable of knowing what Velen sees. Not that, not necessarily that Kure saw it before Velen did. You know what I'm saying? It's right. Possible. And that, I agree with that. But at either rate, what what has me going about this whole thing is from the beginning, I feel I felt like whatever the prophecy was, they had the wrong night elf. I've always felt that way. I still feel that way. Um, I feel from the beginning that they had the wrong night elf. That's, that there that's was another the other night thing, elf. Yeah, that's the other thing that I was going to ask and get to, actually. 
um, after we talked about the prophecy itself and where we thought it generated from. Um, well, because... honestly, I think it's from some... Let me put it this way. We, we know there's some connection between Elun and the Naru. Yeah. We don't know what it is. We don't know... We know that the tier of Elun Cadgar worked... theorized that Elun created the Naru somehow. Yeah. But all we've got for that is Cadgar read a book somewhere. Yeah. He, he didn't even show us. And who book. knows who wrote that book, you know? Yeah. So it's... Um, it's feasible that Elune made the Naru, and for that matter, Elune might have given Zera the prophecy. If I if I were like if I'm tinfoil hatting, um, I would put, certainly put Elune up there in groups of people who might have given prophecies. Elune is very, uh, very, very closely associated with the Night Elves. So yeah. So, but I've always thought. Uh, to tell me when we're talking about the next part, because I have a let's, lot. Let's go ahead think. and leap into I, that here, okay? I have a feeling that I have a feeling that we're all going to come to the same idea. Yeah, here's too. the deal. Here's the deal. Zira said that she was looking for the child of light and shadow, and then she said Illidan's name. And everybody, I don't know about you two, but my first reaction was, uh, "Excuse me," because there were so many other people that fit that description and possibly there, fit that better description person. better than yeah. anyone else. So. What do you guys think? Do you think Zira had the wrong person? I, I, do. I think she had the. I, I do too because I mean, Illidan isn't necessarily Shadow. I mean, unless you want to say, oh yeah, Night Elf Shadow, whatever. I, I mean, universal balance is the balance between light and void. That's where darkness is. So who? And to be clear, when we say Shadow, we mean Void because the two are kind of right. interchangeable in and the we Warcraft have to, universe. We have to specify that, but I mean, who do we know has been touched and survived? the void that that maybe fit even if we want to go with night elf there's one person that i think fits it better and i hate to say it because i generally don't like him as a character but i i even think malfurion fits it better than illidan does you think he survived the nightmare the nightmare was born a void not the one i'm gonna pick but i'm just who saying like you? I'm saying, I, I think i know better. who you're gonna pick <laughs> rossi but okay. go ahead all right um i i think it's ashara um, really I think it's Ashara touched by the old gods mm-hmm. enormously super powerful enormously magical powerful born with the golden eyes um had she not been raised by the uh the highborn who knows what she could have done you know she's powerful <laughs> enough that that not only did manoroth not want to fight her he didn't even think when he said you know perhaps only you know archimond or even sargeras could defeat her he he didn't even give our archimond the win mm-hmm. he thought maybe archimond could take her maybe. And not only that isn't one of her nicknames light of lights <laughs> Yeah, well, a, they, they a, renamed they renamed the city Elundris, Eye of Elune, to Zinashari, Glory of Ashara. I honestly, every time I think about this, I'm like, you've got Ashara who had every potential to be like just an exquisitely powerful mage, just one of the greatest who's ever lived, up there with any um, of the of the Eridar. So powerful that Manoroth didn't even think Archimonde could just crush her. He was like given, he was like mm, on that one. And she's directly been associated with the old gods. Mm-hmm. She's about so, as close to void as you can get. Okay. So I have I another suggestion for you too. I, I know the one I think you're going to do, but let, let, you should go. Okay. Um, we're looking at night elves and we're looking and we're thinking about night elves. I'm going to go a different tact entirely and say, what about Erator? Because his father is Turalyon, who is very much a representative of the light, and his mother is Verisa, not Verisa, Alaria, 
and we know that Verisa. And no, Verisa. <laughs> that would be weird. No, it's uh, Alaria, and Alaria made a one-off comment that she's been experimenting with the void, and that Zira actually yeah. locked her away for it. So. Erator would very literally be a child of the light and the void because his parents yeah, represent but I, one of each side, correct? Yeah, but he wasn't, I mean, at the time that he was born, was she really playing with the void then? Maybe not, but she's grown to do something with it. And if We're talking about prophecy here. Prophecies don't prophecies care. Are, yeah. yeah, prophecies are this really vague, wild and woolly thing. So I'm wondering if Zero was looking at, you know, night elves, ancient night elves and things like that and wasn't looking at the other possibilities. Because there's other potentials even beyond that. I, you have Anduin. I honestly, I knew that's where I thought you were going to yeah. go. Yeah. That's where I thought you were going to go to. Well, Anduin was like my first, first initial thought. When she said the child of light and shadow, I immediately went, oh, Anduin. Because Anduin has played with both. He's played with the light, obviously. He's a priest. He's a well-established priest. But that hasn't stopped him from meddling in shadow because we saw him doing it in Missa Pandaria. We saw him utilizing it in Missa I... Pandaria. Very, very little, but he did. Now... The only issue that I had with Anduin was that it was a child born of light and shadow, and I didn't think that Varian and Tiffin really encapsulated that so much. But when you look at Turalyon and Ilaria, boy, they do, don't they? But what if it? What if it's not referring to anybody specifically? And the reason I say this is because what unfolds in the the entire confrontation, right? What what happens when everything is coming to that fruition, that endpoint? I don't think the prophecy was designed to be anybody specific. I think what it was, at least this is just me from looking at it, is I think it was more, we need a powerful vessel that won't explode when we put the power into it. And I think that's more what it was geared towards. So in that in that capacity, any of these people that we've mentioned, any of these great heroes could potentially fill that gap. And I think Zara just became super fixated on Illidan because, one, Malfurion already has his his role to play and he's tied to Azeroth proper. I don't think she wants to – I don't think they want to take that anything away from that because he's needed there. I also don't but, think that Malfurion – I mean, Malfurion, oh gosh, has he been touched by the void? Absolutely, without question. Yeah. The nightmare is just reeking with it. But as far as the light side goes, he's much more concerned with natural oh, yeah. magics and everything than he is with the holy oh, light or I, and, the and light of a loon or any of that. But, I mean, I'm just saying, I don't think he would blow up if you decided to infuse him with the light. I believe he may be powerful enough that he wouldn't instantaneously die or evaporate or destroy a plane of existence, just like <laughs> Illidan. And, and, like, it's one of those things where, like, yeah, Illidan is, you know, he plays with the the these weird dark magics. He's been, you know, touched by the fell. He's been doing all of this stuff. But I think that was mainly why the focus is. Because if you look back at, at even the Nighthold, they wanted his body to house Sargeras. Because he wouldn't explode. Like, that's a pretty darn powerful vessel. And so if you can infuse that with both light and void and have it do what it needs to do without going crazy or crazier than it already is, I think that's more what the prophecy was geared towards. And I think wherever Zara got this prophecy from, I think it was purposely vague because of that. Because it's like, okay, if this one doesn't work out, then there's other ones that could potentially do this. Go forth and find it. I think Zara just... Uh, I think she became infatuated with the idea that this was the perfect vessel. And I think that was just further sort of solidified by the fact that the Legion wanted the vessel, too, for the exact same reason. And that's where they sort of that fixation came from. the essence of everything that is the Burning Legion. Sargeras 
into mm-hmm. Illidan. She because wanted he can to pour the entirety of light into Illidan. And you can see that in the cutscene. You can see that in that scene where she's. You let's know... talk about that cutscene. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that cutscene because um, that was a pretty substantial cutscene. Um, Illidan Zero was reborn, or rather, she was put back together again. I guess we'll we'll put it that way. We put the battery back in the robot. So we to put speak. the battery. We, we we plonked the battery back into the correct interface or whatever, and she rebooted herself and said, "Bring me the chosen one," and promptly started trying to convince Illidan that he needed the light in him and when he turned down that offer or said I I don't really need that she tried to force it on him and that was a little uncomfortable to watch because she was very insistent on that and it was insistent to the point that Illidan felt like he needed to break his bonds and murder the Naru. Well I mean in that scene too there's an important thing to note like the scene was she was forcing the light into him and it was overriding the the symbols the the, the fell yeah tattoos, his runes were turning fell. into light runes which it was, was really erasing, interesting it was erasing the fell from him yeah and she she specifically said that you know obviously Sargeras you know burned his birthright from him Sargeras burned his eyes out those golden eyes that marked him as having this great destiny Sargeras burned them to cinders and replaced them with mystic fire and Illidan, from then on, you know, every step that he made, he was working against the Legion, yes, but he was doing it by almost being a vessel for the Legion, too. It was this weird sort of counterbalance type thing. And what Zero was proposing there was erasing it, restoring his sight, or restoring it with something. I don't know if she would have, like, healed his eyes entirely or made them, like, holy light eyes. Who knows? But Illidan didn't want any part of that. And to the point where he he really violently turned her down and shattered her into a million billion pieces and ticked off everybody. Um, Turalyon wanted to straight up murder him. Turalyon was so upset. And one of the really interesting pieces from that cinematic that I noticed, when they restored Zira and it looks down on Turalyon, Turalyon has golden eyes. He has mm-hmm. golden, golden eyes. When Zira dies, his eyes turn brown. They go back to a regular color. You, you know what I didn't notice ha- afterwards? What? Is this sword still whole yes. after Zara dies? Yes. Yeah, the glow, the glow of the sword is still there. He's still okay. giving off. He still gives off a glow too, for that matter. Okay. Yeah. I'm gonna say up front something that I noticed from the beginning that I've actually been arguing with multiple people. Okay. On this one, Zara has never actually been particularly positive towards Illidan in any of the times she's ever spoken. No. She's never once said. He, he was doing a good thing. She's asked people what they thought of what he was doing. She's never once said, and it was a good thing. She said, what would you have done? And there's a reason for that. Because I don't think at any point in time, Zara knew who she was dealing with. And she, I don't think she was being, like, I don't think she was pretending that she did. She was probing it, looking at with the past. She sends you to help her do it. That's your role in those quests. The Lightheart's quests aren't whitewashing Illidan's past because she never takes any sort of moral stand on what he does. She's looking at it. So I really think this comes through when you do the quest uh, set in Blackrock Hold, when you're doing the quest where you're uh, fighting the Legion and sacrificing the, the Moon uh, Guard. The Moon Guard, uh, yeah. Zera is neither, Zera does not particularly care one way or the other. 
She she doesn't have, take a moral state. She's not. This is horrible, and I think that it's there's a, a very big problem. analytical approach. Yeah, and this has been a problem from the get go. People uh, see Zara, they realize she's this prime Naru. She's one of the, if not the first, one of the first Naru ever, and they think, well, she must be pure good. The light isn't good. The light is not a moral force. The light is an existential force. It's one of two, two halves of existence. Shadow isn't evil and light isn't good. Are there evil things dwelling in shadow? Yes, absolutely. That doesn't make the shadow itself evil. Shadow simply is negation of light. The light is simply creation of existence. These two things are simply antithetically opposed. There isn't a moral stance to this, which is why the Naru have light and dark cycles. Mm-hmm. They've never been purely one or the other. They have cycles because these things don't have a specific moral component. She wanted to stop the Legion. That was her goal. And she was going to use Illidan to do it, whether or not he agreed. And he wasn't arguing that same thing. He wasn't a person. He was an object. He was the vessel that we're talking about. He -hmm. was a thing. And I feel like those Light's Heart quests weren't her trying to convince us that Illidan was a good guy so much as her trying to figure out if Illidan was in fact the appropriate vessel for the job. Was he suitable? Yeah. Would he work? Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting because it's the exact same thing Sargeras wanted to use him for. Yep. Yeah. But I mean, you hit on something that I've been arguing with people about for months now. Like it's like between light and shadow, neither is inherently good. Neither is inherently evil. We apply our own morality through to it through the course of being player characters and what we decide to, to do with it. I mean, paladins you can say and priests and i mean priests touch both they touch void they touch light is a shadow priest evil a shadow priest can still heal they're still shadow mend they can still go through and and they still accomplish the same things they still have the same goal saving people i mean paladins sure they they touch the light and they're warriors of the light but again that's that's more mortal morality applied to the tool of force i feel like sorry go ahead rossi well, I was the other day. I was watching the uh, old corrupted Ashbringer cinematic. So that's, do you remember how, like that? How you could take it into the Scarlet Monastery? Yes, oh, and yeah. everybody would kneel down to you, and it was oh, really that crazy. was so cool back in the day. They yeah, still, they still do. Okay, yeah. even now, even with the completely changed uh, Scarlet Monastery, if you go into that wing, everyone still kneels down. If you bring a corrupted Ashbringer with you, you can still go up, and Mograin is still there. They replace the new guy with Mograin if you go in, and uh, it's all the same. And Alexandros Mograine still shows up and still nukes his son to death. And that guy was like one of the strongest wielders of the light who ever lived. You know, it, it isn't he, he used to set armies on fire with that thing. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why he was called the Ashbringer, because he burned things to ash. The, the light isn't good. The light is power. Now, yes. it can, it, can it be good? Yes, absolutely. You can heal with the light or you can cauterize with it. Because there's plenty of Forsaken who know that feeling. The light is like literally searing them to use it. Even even with Turalyon, I mean, even when you look at Turalyon, when we're talking about the whole nebulousness of good and evil and whether the light is good, when Turalyon saw Lothar fall, he had a moment like a crisis of conscience where he was trying to reconcile the light uniting everything, like all creatures, but also allowing creatures like orcs on the world and the reason the the reasoning 
the justification he eventually came to was that the light only united the creatures of Azeroth and because the orcs did not belong there they could be wiped out just with like he could go ahead and just wipe them the heck out and it was we fine. know that yeah, the light we would know be fine with that and we yeah. know that that's not true but that's when Turalyon kind of stepped up and like the light overtook him and he rallied everybody and they struck back against the orcs his reasoning was the reason it was his reasoning it wasn't the light telling him something it was his reasoning the light mm-hmm. wasn't justifying anything there it was just his I, interpretation of it i know he gets brought up a lot and sometimes i get tired of hearing about him but zeliac's another example of someone who can touch the light despite knowing full well yeah zeliac knows i'm a horrible undead monster and i'm being controlled by an evil monster who is going to destroy everything nevertheless i believe and the light hears him and responds, even though he's using the light to try and kill you. And you're there to stop Nexramus. He, he's objectively on the side of evil. The light still comes to him because he believes. He has faith in it and it responds. The light doesn't make moral judgments. Isn't he the one, isn't he the one also that when you first went in there, he was like, get out while you still can? Oh, he, yeah. He was still trying is to right warn now. you through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He doesn't want to kill you. He's no. just helpless. He can't stop. The Lich King has control of him and he can't stop it. But nevertheless, the light doesn't say, well, I'm not going to come to you because, you know, you're being controlled by evil. The light straight up just comes. He believes strongly enough that the light answers him. You know, that there's a fascinating thing that when you when you go in to Light's Hope Cathedral as a death knight and you're trying to steal Tyrion's body, the light does not take kindly to this even though you have a perfectly good reason to do it. The world is in great danger. We need a champion like Tyrion to fight for it. Nope. No, you can't have him back. He's ours now. Light doesn't care. So there is a fascinating interplay of this, this whole good evil thing when you, when it deals with the light, the light can burn you to ash. It doesn't necessarily, it's not all sunshine and kittens here. Can we talk for just a second about the nature of the Naru themselves? Um, I don't think we've ever actually gotten a definition of, of exactly what a Naru is. Um, and I've kicked around my own definitions over the years. But, and I mean, it's been everything from, you know, Titans that have mastered the light so much that they've just sort of ascended corporeal form to they're just manifestations of the light. That's what they, they're physical manifestations of the light. That's all they are. Um what do you guys think? What do you think the Naru are? Are they an agent for something? Are they working on on behalf of some greater power? Or are they just like a representation of a concept? I think they're somewhere in between. And and I think this goes back to the whole point of their, their cycle. I think their entire purpose are basically cosmic balance keepers. And I don't think even they understand that. I, I think they understand like they have these cycles. I think they understand that they they exist both light and the void. But if you look at it, and we talked about the cosmology before, the only way a universe can exist is if everything stays in harmony and balance. And so I and don't necessarily... we kind of got that a little bit on a much smaller scale in Mr. Pandaria. We did. And, and Naru are almost this perfect microcosm of that because they expend all of their light and they push the balance one way. And then they're filled with the void and they have to take everything back in, which pushes the balance back the other way. And through this ebb and flow whatever form they're in, whatever agency they're, they're, they're sort of pushing, whatever side of that force they're pushing, everything winds up essentially averaging out to middle. And I think that's where they exist. And I think we, we sort of, 
we sort of put this we, we prescribe a morality to them that I don't think they necessarily have. And I think we've seen that with, you know, Zara and I think we've seen that with other Naru in the past. It's they have a job to do and that's it. They've got and an agenda and they need to fill out yep. that agenda. And it doesn't matter whether and, and the morality of that agenda is inconsequential. It doesn't matter if it's right. Like, again, I'll go back to the Zara and, and, and Illidan thing. Is what she did right? I don't think so, but I'm applying my own morality to it. To let's her, go maybe ahead and it... let's let's pu- hit pause on that because our second email actually deals with that, and we're going to oh, get into enough. that in a minute. Um, but again, I, I think they're cosmic balance. That's that's what I think they are. I think they're agents of that balance. Yeah, I want to go to Rossi real quick here. Rossi, what do you think the Naru are? Robots. Really? Co- constructs. I've always I've always thought this because a all Naru technology, all crystalline Naru technology, is magic. And it's alive. The Exodar is alive. It's a living thing. It has an, a mind and a will. Uh, so does the new ship. The Vindicar is a living thing. These things are not any any Naru crystal ship you see is a living being. We're told this. We're told this in Prophet's lesson. These things are alive. The uh, the crystal that became part of the Ashbringer, the one that absorbed light when they shot it, they tried destroying it with the light. It just absorbed it and became a light thing. Um, Come on, that thing is so obviously a piece of an Aru. It's a chunk of an Aru. There's, there's no oh, way yeah. around. I don't think there's, I don't think there's any denying that. We, we don't. We've been told in the past that we don't even know how many societies rose and fell on Argus. We don't know how far back it goes. Um, the obviously there was a piece of the Atamal crystal left behind that was sacred to the to the Eridar people. That they they honored it and enshrined it and and went and prayed at it. They thought of it as a sacred thing. It's that crystal that Kure reached Velen through. I think at some unimaginable period in time, uh, Ilun created the Naru. We're just going to go with that for now. And she created them as constructs because that's what they are. She constructed them. And I think Ilun is a Titan or something Titan-like. Uh, if she's not, then she's a being of pure light, something more like the Void Lords. Those are the only two options I can see at this point for Ilun. Either she is a Titan or... Or she's beyond the Titans. She's some sort of massive light entity like the Void Lord's opposite. And either way, I think she made the Naru to try and keep the universe going. Because remember, the Void Lords want to destroy it. They want to end the universe. They want it to stop. Keeping the universe going is more important than whether or not this one individual being wants to be part of the plan or not. And we've seen this with the Naru before. We've watched uh, when when we're on Outland and the and the Ashagun, you know, the Genadar crashed and became Ashagun. There was a there's a a, a a Naru who's so badly injured they left him inside of it. And the spirits of the local orcs are being drawn to it, and their their energy is being used to help move it through its void cycle and back into its light cycle. And the Naru regret this. But they regret it and kind of, oh, it's, it's unfortunate they that say, that has to happen. Yeah, it's regrettable, but it's just part of our life cycle. Yeah, there's nothing we can do about the fact that we are consuming your ancestors. Sorry. Now think about it. What else do we know that consumes souls for power? I mean, there's lots of things that do that. There's so many things that do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what of... specific one are you looking at there? Well, right in this expansion, we see soul engines all the time. Yes. Oh, yeah. That consume souls for power. And the Naru do it, too. They consume souls. I was going to say, Frostmourne kind of does that. Yeah, Frostmourne, which is a rune weapon. Yeah. And the Legion made it. So there's this this is why I sometimes think there's got to be a Titan connection here, because it seems that Titan technology is all about the creation and destruction of souls. Like Sargeras and his soul engines is very much about the destruction of souls to make fell power. But 
the Titans made the Titan Forged. They created their souls. The uh, Agrimar by himself made Grand, and when Grand died, the elemental force within him went forth into the world, and souls came out. Because orcs have souls. Every every anything that descended from Grand, all those those you know primordials, all those uh, breakers have souls. It's so, so weird to think about. Yeah, the, there's there's a certain the, the Naru strike me as a defense system that is not particularly concerned with the, with what the beings in the universe want, which makes it very like the Titans Mm -hmm. in that the Titans don't care if the individual beings on Azeroth live or die. They care if Azeroth lives or dies. They don't care about you. And what Illidan faced in that moment was somebody who was completely willing to utterly remake him because she wanted a weapon. All right. Let's let let's jump into this next email because this kind of deals with that question, and um, I want to get into it here. This is from Don Bright, who's a Draenei Paladin on Scarlet Crusade, who says, "Honor to the Watchers." In regards to the fate of Zira's cutscene, do we feel that Illidan was justified in his reaction to Zira's application of the light? If so, what implications does this have for Naru and the light as a force of good? Many thanks, Don Bright. Um, Obviously, Zira is trying to do something here that Illidan doesn't agree with, and it kind of backfires on her in spectacular fashion. Do we think that Illidan's reaction to that was justified? From his I perspective, would, absolutely. I think it was. I, and, and and I say that because I would say this a lot more emphatically, but I don't want to curse on the air. Um, you don't go against a living creature and take a, attempt to take away its agency and not expect something like that to happen. Like that's essentially what she was doing was overriding his free will, his choice and whether it was right or wrong in Illidan's response for Illidan's agency, for Illidan saying, yes, I'm a master of my own fate. It was right. It's the same thing. It's, it's no different than, you know, having him imprisoned or anything else like that. It's just a different type of prison. So yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I'm going to quote someone and you guys are going to know exactly who I'm quoting as soon as I start this, because we've used this quote before many, many times. Perhaps it is your imperfections, that which grants you free will that allows you to persevere against all cosmically calculated odds. You prevail where the Titan's own perfect creations have failed. It's our free will. It startled Algalon when he experienced it. It, it, shook him out when we defeated him he was not expecting us to defeat he was not even expecting us to fight him he was a little bit confused on that standpoint and the fact that we had that free will was something that took him by surprise yeah i definitely think you have a point i was gonna say what i think as far as a cinematic goes as far as what zero was trying to do here was that she had severely underestimated the free will of illidan and kind of put that to the side because she was so busy with that analytical observation that she hadn't considered that these creatures well, had that to go even power further. within themselves. To, to go even further, the ones that, that the Naru tend to interact with, I mean, Torellian's a great example. He's going to do whatever he feels an agent of the light, you know, tells him to do or says is the best course of action because one, he's a soldier. Two, this is a higher power than him. And he has faith in the light and that the light is going to tell him to do the right thing. Again, that, that applied morality from a, a mortal aspect. And I quite and so, like Illidan's line to Tyrellion after Tyrellion tried to strike him down. He said, your faith has blinded you. Yeah. And I think that's it because the Naru look at somebody like Tyrellion and it's like, okay, yeah, they have free will, but they're still doing whatever we say. So that must be all of them, right? Uh, they all must be like this. I don't think I don't think that's that they're necessarily making assumptions like that. I think that they literally don't care. 
Like, I don't think. Well, I mean, yeah. Zero, yeah, I don't think. <laughs> I mean, when I say I don't care, I don't mean in a cold, dismissive way. I mean, they don't. It doesn't even occur to it's them. It's not that they don't care. It's that they are incapable of caring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They are the not idea the ty- it, They are an entity. They don't yeah. have empathy. And it's really, I think when you look at Zara, when you look at Zara from the beginning on, she never viewed Illidan as a purpose, as a person. She viewed him as a vessel, a purpose. He had a purpose. He'd fulfill it. That's, there was no way around this. Um, and it's, it's really striking because here's the thing. From her perspective, from, from a celestial cosmic perspective, what she was doing could definitely be seen as good. Because she wants to end this. She wants to stop the Burning Crusade. She wants to end the destruction of countless, countless worlds. Countless, countless souls and lives. And, you know, for that matter, countless possible titans. All destroyed by the Crusade. She wants to end it. You can, you, we know of people in real life who've had to make decisions like, do I, do I reveal that I have this information and save 100 people now but lose the further information that could save thousands? Like, what choice do I make? What's the acceptable loss? Illidan was an acceptable loss. Why wouldn't he be? Why wouldn't she be like, okay, the way you feel is relatively inconsequential compared to everything that will happen if I don't act. Y'all, I have a tinfoil hat that I'm working on that's just like, and deals with a lot of this, but I can't really talk about it right now because it's not going to come out till next week, but it's a good one. Um, Yeah, but... I definitely think that from her perspective, what she was doing was the right thing to do. The problem is, is quite simply, you know, not only does she not understand free will, and I, she doesn't I understand think, the violation she's trying to invent. Right, and I feel like right. we have to specify when she said, when you say that she feels like she's doing the right thing, it's not the right thing from a morality she's standpoint. She's fulfilling a duty. It is. It is. It's victory. It's the victory condition. It's the victory condition. This. It's also it. It's the okay. If I need, if I want to complete the circuit that is in front of me, I need to plug in this particular piece yeah. to that circuit. And like, if you go back to the whole they're robots thing, and I think that makes perfect sense because that's what they're programmed to do. Yeah. Like, they're and just programmed to she complete did not the task. Expect the piece completing that she the was, task. Yeah, she did not expect the piece that she was plugging into that circuit to argue with her. Um, so she tried to force, you know, perhaps tried to force the square peg into the round hole as it were we've all tr- we've all tried to jam the usb thing in the port and <laughs> upside go down like, yeah you flip it over yeah you, you rotate it, over it twice it every still time. doesn't go in yeah it's like why did i have to flip it twice it should have gone the first time <laughs> she's flipping him over and suddenly he exploded on her you know and like you can't flip me over well of course i can flip you over look i just did it i'm gonna do it again now and boom you know oh god as who knew it would as... blow up as as far as Illidan being justified in his reaction, was he justified in his reaction? Yeah, I think he absolutely was because what Zera was essentially telling him was, yeah, the rest of your life doesn't matter. We're just going to remake it right now. And not only that, it's not like what was he supposed to do? She had him. Yeah. She doesn't let him go until he is blasting her with lasers. You know what I mean? It's not like she lets him go and they argue about it. He starts blasting her with lasers and that's when she lets him go. Could he have stopped at that point? I guess. It's kind of hard to imagine that you would. Well, I mean, if I you let, have if somebody I now, overriding you, what are you going to do? Yeah. I, I've always I mean, felt, you know, that was like one of the situations where I guess you could make the argument that he could have stopped, but I can't see why he would at that point. It's not like she, she, didn't, est- she didn't establish any trust with him. She didn't earn anything from him. But why, why would you stop? I'd keep zapping her. What are my alternatives? Stop and hope she doesn't do that to me again? 
Like, I don't know. Granted, I don't know that Illidan has the same cooldown problems my Death Knight has. My Death Knight, my Demon Hunter, sorry. My Demon Hunter couldn't laser her again for like half an hour. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I have. But I also. It, it also depends on how much Illidan knows about the Naru, too. Like, I mean, he may fully come to that same conclusion that we did, where it's like, she's just going to keep doing this. I, I This is just going to keep happening, so I'm going to end it so it doesn't keep happening. You know, like, he's got well, what a, she was a lot more knowledge than we think. Of, what she was proposing was kind of horrifying, because she was saying... It was creepy! The, the light is going to give you a new life. Take it. Take it now. The light will remake you. It's going right? to remake like, you. That's and what she said. The light will remake you. <laughs> let it wash away your scars. And he says specifically, and this was the best line. Oh, my gosh. The way he delivered that line. Oh, that, yeah. It was fantastic. The voice actor for Illidan is so good in this scene. He says, I am my scars. And I, I really, what I appreciated about this scene, right, is that destiny is one of those things that has kind of permeated the Warcraft mythos. Like, everybody's got a destiny, you gotta pick up a sword, go fight, be a hero, whatever. Everybody's got a def- destiny. Prophecies are another thing that have been really heavy in Warcraft lore. And in this scene and in this moment, Illidan puts his foot down and says, no, and kind of gives destiny a big middle finger and says, no, I'm more than that. I am everything that has made me what I am today, and that is important, and that is valid, and I don't need to be your chosen one. We don't need a chosen one. We need to be fighting for ourselves. The only people mm-hmm. that can save us are ourselves, is it ourselves. Really ties in, it ties into the message at the end of Warcraft 3 very well. Yeah, I would agree with that. I was going to say that. It ties into the message we got at the end of Cataclysm. You know, this is the age of mortals. Age of mortals. Yep. This is our, you know, it's your time to save yourselves, defend yourselves. And this is it. This is that moment made, you know, Turalyon. It's interesting. Turalyon was so blinded by his own faith. He was willing to lock his own wife up. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, it will be fine. She'll, she'll you know, she'll, knows best. Yeah, you know, it, it'll be fine. Illyria, you know, when you watch that video, Illyria is certainly, Illyria doesn't like smile or giggle or anything, but she's got a look on her face like, I know where you're going with this, Illidan. I've I've been there. Do you know what I mean? She's she's got that look on oh, her. Yeah. It's it's kind of neat because the look on her face is kind of reminiscent to, um, you know, the little kid sitting in the back seat of the car, and her like, sister's going so. on and on about about going to Disneyland, and the little kids just kind of giving her the side eye, going eh, because she's kind of uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. It's that look. <laughs> That's how I read it. I'm like, Hilaria's not. 100% gung-ho or comfortable with what's going on here. Um, and it's pretty apparent that she's not 100% comfortable with what's going on here. But at the same time, you have to have faith, right? And Illidan saying, no, you do not have to have faith in some you unknown know, entity that we don't even know. What you have to have faith in is yourself and your own actions. You need to take control of your own destiny because it's yours. I think the another important part of that aspect is how Velen reacts to after everything is said and done. Because like Ooh. he could he could totally be like, yeah, you just destroyed Anaru. I don't like you anymore. Or you know, you just decimated an agent of the light and get all you know huffy and puffy about it. But he's just like, I, I, it was almost like he had this moment. At least the, the way it read to me of this goes into the earlier conversation we just had. He might actually be somewhat right. All right, so you go pick up those pieces. We're still going to make use of this. Like, it's not we're going to, you know, mourn the loss of an agent of the light. It's like, no, pick up the pieces. We're putting them to work. 
we got stuff to do. It is our job to go and finish this fight and we're going to finish it. And it was like sort of this moment of resolve for him because it wasn't like this, this wishy-washy like, oh, you know, I'm going to, we're, we're just going to see where destiny takes us type thing. It, it was a perfect example of that starting, starting to ripple out to not just the heroes, but the ones that lead the heroes. And I really dug that. And I moment feel like too. that kind of started from the moment that Rakesh died. Yes, absolutely. Because Velen stood up and said, get the vessel ready. We're going home. I'm done running. Um, it's just a I moment of further progression of, for the character. Yeah. And I find that kind of interesting because when you go to um, Macquarie the first time, um, you see a vision. Basically, it, it's it's Velen. It's Velen's last moments on Argus before everybody left. And, With Hatoon. Yeah. And, and yeah. then he he sees these spirits that are running around and, and reliving you know the horror of that moment of the legion like taking over and he says that when he was watching Argus grow smaller and smaller in the distance he begged the Naru to turn around and go back and they told him that that wasn't his path and he seemed to really regret that and part of me kind of wonders is he is he questioning his devotion to the Naru at this point is he is he is he turning down the same path as Illidan is where he's saying, no, we need to take control of our own destiny, and this is the time to do that. Because he doesn't feel as much like a cog in the wheel of the Naru. Not anymore. As he did previously. And it seems like the death of his son really kind of kicked that into fast forward. I don't know. What do you, how do you guys feel about Velen? Rossi, you haven't said anything in a while. Uh, you know, sometimes I talk a lot, so I've been trying to let other people talk. Uh, Velen... I, when I when I watched that the first time I watched it, it was Velen's response was the one that really surprised me. Turalyon, I expected to be all you know freaking out. I wasn't surprised by Turalyon. I was made curious by Alaria's lack of response. Like Alaria's, Alaria's sitting in the background. She's like, whatever. So that that's interesting to me. But it was Velen's response where he's just matter of fact, like, well, the light doesn't leave just because the Naru dies. And it's like, you realize in that moment, he's already gotten to the point where he's no longer following the, the, the Naru. He's following the light and himself. And there are two different things there. Yeah. It's the, the Naru, they are beings. They, they, they have a different perspective, but they're not the sole arbiters of the light. The light doesn't need the Naru to, to make its will manifest. And I... I felt like that was a really fascinating thing. I've always liked Velen. I've always thought Velen was interesting. And I feel like this is a continuation of what we saw starting in Prophet's Lesson, Mm -hmm. where he spends all of Prophet's Lesson trying to have a vision because he was injured back in the uh, crash. And it's been a long time. He hasn't hasn't been able to have reliable visions for a very long time. He spends all of Prophet's Lesson trying to have like a reliable vision only for Anduin to reach him and go, it doesn't matter. The future doesn't matter. The present matters. Now, matters. I believe what Andwin said was every life is a universe. Yeah. And it kind of snapped Velen out of it because he'd been in this fugue where he'd been trying to search so hard for the future that he forgot about the present, which is kind of interesting, actually, because that's sort of what happened to Nosdormu. He was he was spending so much time trying to track down what had happened to himself, like what had happened to create the infinite that he got he got lost in time, literally lost in time. He wasn't paying attention to the present at all. He was absent from it. Um, and this is kind of Velen on a smaller scale of that, where yeah. he, he was so lost in this whole seek a vision 
you know, see what the future holds, see what the future holds. And Anduin had to kind of like grab him by the arm, shake him and go, hey, you know, right now is really important to right now. Super important. <laughs> yeah. If you don't get through now, you'll never get to then. Yeah. And that's the, the thing that Anduin started him on that path. We didn't see much of him. You know, obviously, in, in mists, we saw him a little bit when the, when the Shah were there. He's the one that identified, no, this is bad news. This, you can't touch this. Don't try to use this. Um, and he, you see him a little bit in uh, Warlords. You see the other one. Yeah, that, Warlords the other one, is the other Velen. But it's, it's still, it's funny because it's still Velen. There's nothing about his personality yeah. or anything that's different. And so you get to see what Velen was willing to sacrifice to, to you know, redeem the Naru. And in a way that really informs you, because now we've seen a Velen who's willing to sacrifice the Naru. He's willing, you know, not necessarily, he wouldn't murder them or anything, but if one dies, okay, everybody's died. Oros died. You have to sense seeing Oros die and then seeing Rakish die really brought home to him that the Naru aren't gods. The Naru aren't. They are not infallible. They're not, they're not beings or upon even, which you can always rely on. They're just. Or they like, may not have your best interests at heart. Let's, I mean. I think I that's the realization. I don't know if he's necessarily worried about what their best, the best interest at heart thing so much as he's realized they can't do this for us. I've been letting them tell me what to do for 25,000 years, securing the knowledge that they would, you know, always tell me the right thing to do, but I can't do that anymore. It's not up to them to tell me what to do. It's up to me to decide what to do. And I think and that's, that's the, what makes yeah. Illidan and Velen in particular such an interesting pair. Like, I wasn't sure, you know, when I first started playing around on 7.3, I was like, why Velen and Illidan? That's a, just a really weird pair to put together. And then the more we got into it, the more I was like, oh, no, 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 this works. This works on so many levels. Like, these two are, they're kind of two halves of the same thing, just approaching it, it yeah. from different sides, almost. Works, Yeah, it works because Illidan is, like, one of the few people who will actually tell Velen off. But it also works because Velen is one of the few people that when Illidan focuses the full weight of his bombastic self on him, doesn't crumble. Velen's like, no, you, no, you're full of it here, man. The, the, I'm listening to you, but the light isn't just some blinding parlor trick. No, we, we're going to do things my way. There's, there's a fascinating interplay between the two of them um, that you really don't – you never got from Malfurion because Malfurion was always kind of – There was wanted... a self-righteousness about Malfurion that Velen does not have. Yeah, Velen has been through too much. Uh, in a weird sort of way, it's it's like Malfurion was Velen training wheels for Illidan. Like he, he, <laughs> he went through that for ten thousand years, and then like, so it worked. It honed his snark to like razor sharp, giving him the ability to break through Velen's reserve. But Velen is just not. There's nothing you know about. There's nothing of tense to Velen, Velen which Malfurion can have. Velen is not just a rock. Velen is a mountain. Yeah. And you can't, he, he, when he plants himself there and gives you his reasoning, it's that like, you can talk to him about it, but you can't, you can't needle a mountain. <laughs> you could try, but you're not going to get very far. Um, and, and that's a lot of what I like about Velen. Okay. 
I think we actually need to wrap up for this week because we have been going on for quite a while here. Again, if you have any emails regarding 7.3 or any of the events in 7.3, please feel free to email those to podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Put Lorewatch in the subject line so that we know it's for this show. Blizzard Watch, it's made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch, and your continued support means that this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your question answered on our podcast, or the queue and an ads free site experience final thoughts guys so here's what i want to know are the naru the good guys and the void lords slash old gods bad guys or is it something more than that if the naru aren't the good guys does that mean that the old gods aren't the bad guys the old gods want to destroy everything okay so i don't want to be destroyed okay i think that's where it comes down to okay it's not a moral decision on my part. It's a survival decision. As long as the, the Naru are willing to help me stop that kind of thing, I am totally on board with them. But the second that they kind of start treating me like a disposable piece, then I have a problem with them. So that's where I am on that. I don't think, I don't think it's as simple as good guys and bad guys, but it doesn't matter if an elephant crushing an anthill, the ants don't care if the elephant had anything against them. Okay. Joe, same question. I also don't want to be destroyed. Like, (sighs) But it's a complicated question, and I think it's something that are the old gods just acting in their nature just like everything else? Is is that the whole point, or are they truly wonderfully evil? And I don't know, because at the end of the day, they haven't really lied about anything. They just have their own goals that they're working towards. So I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I, I just want to stick around for a while and maybe make my own determination and not be destroyed. So, I mean, if they keep trying that, I, I guess I'll have to keep putting them back in their little void hole. I guess my thing is, is if we're going to say that the light isn't necessarily a force for good, it's just a piece of existence, then maybe we have to look at the void and say the same thing. It's not a force for evil, it's just a piece of existence. So what does that make the old gods? And maybe that's a question we can get into next time, I don't know. But yeah, if you guys have an email, please feel free to shoot that at us. And thanks as always for listening. We will see you guys again in two weeks. 